Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. We really, really appreciate your support. I know I say that every time, but I mean it sincerely every time. For less than the cost of a functional hammer, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. Today I learned how much hammers cost. They cost more than $5. Nicole was incredibly shocked by this revelation that hammers cost more than $5, which is the monthly cost for Patreon. Yes. There were some hammers that we looked at that were over $300. To be fair, there was also one for $7. Still more than 5 though, so the statement still rings true. I don't think that was a very good hammer. It didn't look very functional. It seemed like a one or two use hammer, and then you would have to go back to Home Depot to purchase another hammer. I'm clearly not qualified to decipher good from bad hammers. Clearly. It's outside my area of expertise. When I was trying to find the pricing for hammers, there were a couple that looked like you would hang them off your belt if you were trying to like flex in your suburban neighborhood about how much money you spent on your hammer. Like, be off your off your hammer belt clip and you wander over to your neighbor and just pop your leg up and make sure he saw your hammer. Fun fact, we had this conversation before we started recording and I thought, we've spared you all from listening to our hammer tangent and then here we are. Wrong! And yep, here we wrong. are on this hammer tangent. So I hope you enjoyed our hammer discussion and moving along to the news. Brian, why don't you take it away? I am going to take it away on hammer on the news segment. This week in engineering news, safer helmets. The researchers at Johns Hopkins University, yes, the John is plural, specifically the Hopkins Extreme Materials Institute, which sounds like a super rad place to work that 12-year-old me would think is super exciting. I think current day you also thinks that, Brian. You are not incorrect. (laughs) I also think this sounds pretty cool. And it's at a university, so you know they're doing some pretty cool stuff. And they've developed a shock-absorbing material that protects like metal, but is lighter, stronger, and reusable with extreme energy absorption capability. So they've added strength with high-energy absorbing liquid elastomers, or LECs, which are common in actuators and robotics. The testing so far for the helmets includes strikes from objects weighing 2 to 7 kilograms, maybe some hammers, and speeds up to 35 kilometers per hour. That doesn't sound very fast, but keep in mind these helmets that they're testing, at least from my understanding, are for athletes. So that is probably within the realm of acceptable forces. For the most part, maybe not in professional sports, but in uh, amateur sports, that that doesn't seem unreasonable. They're also confident that the material can withstand greater impacts. They just haven't expanded the testing yet, or at least hadn't at the time of this article. And the team of researchers is collaborating with industry to design these helmets specifically for athletes, as I had mentioned, and also for the military. I think there's some other applications for this potentially in automotive sports. We're both automotive racing fans, and we've been actually talking about doing an episode on Uh, racing safety and so that's kind of why these helmets come to mind for that application which i think would be pretty cool obviously significantly greater impacts so that's something they have to address Um, but it's nice that it's lightweight especially because it's on your head it's a lot of strain you're putting on your neck 
In addition to helmets, though, this product, they think, can be used for some other ideal applications, such as body armor, car armor, and aerospace parts, which is pretty cool. If you want to read more about these safer helmets, check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. This week's episode of Failureology is brought to you by Long's Long Pants. They're long pants made by Long's. Not to be confused with shorts. These are different. This seems pretty self-explanatory from the name. But yet, here we are, explaining long pants. Long's Long Pants. Now, on to this week's engineering failure, the Big Bayou Cannot Rail Accident. This is an incident that happened on September 22nd, 1993, and it's the derailing of an Amtrak train on the Big Bayou Cannot Bridge near Mobile, Alabama. As finally promised, we're doing Big Bayou Cannot. I know that I promised it on the two previous episodes, which was an accident on my part, but we are now doing this episode. Really, really excited. Also, this is something that I really enjoy about the mini failures because when we initially started researching this, we thought we were going to find a limited amount of information and this was slated for a mini failure episode. And then once we found all of the investigative reports and started digging into this failure, we realized there was a lot more information there and it's actually a much more involved failure than we had initially uh, anticipated. And we decided to to use it as a regular episode. And so it's it's pretty cool to see, you know, we have this list of failures and we kind of, based on what we know about them going in, we make assumptions on whether or not we're going to have a lot of info or a little info, and then we kind of schedule them that way. But then once we get into the research, things change, which I just think is really cool. Yeah, because we've had episodes where we thought there'd be a full episode of Failureology, and then it's kind of fizzled out. There hasn't been enough. So we've turned them in, into mini failures. So I'm really excited that one that we thought was a mini failure is now a full episode for your listening enjoyment. And bonus, it's about a train. So let's get into the accident. A barge being pushed by the towboat Mavilla made a wrong turn on the Mobile River and ended up on the Big Bayou Cannot, which is an unnavigable channel. The towboat crew included a captain, pilot, and two deckhands. The pilot took over control of the boat from the captain around 11.30 p.m. So this towboat was pushing a barge, but it was doing it late at night. This accident happened, I think, somewhere around 2 or 3 a.m. It's definitely later on in our notes. We're going to get to that. But it's dark outside. There was also heavy fog. And on top of that, the towboat pilot, of course, was not properly trained on how to read radar. I feel that's really important for water navigation and air navigation Radar is a big component of knowing what's around you and not running into things. Yeah, essentially, it's like going on a road trip and not having a map. The, he, he, I mean, I guess he had a map. He didn't know how to read it. On top of that, the Tobo also didn't have a compass or a chart of the waters. Because of all of these things, they didn't even know they were off track. So they thought they were on the Mobile River and they didn't even realize they had veered off course. And yes, I Google mapped it and it does kind of just why. And so rather than going to the right and staying on the river, they went to the left. The fog was so dense that the pilot couldn't see and he couldn't even see in front of the boat, which is really bad. At the time when he ran into the bridge, he was actually trying to find a place on the bank of the river to tie off so that he could wade out the fog. Coming from southwestern Ontario, I have certainly seen my fair share of fog. 
And I have had to drive in that fog. You know, you drive with the windows down, no radio, put your fog lights on, drive slow. And to an extent, you can make that work depending on how bad the fog is. But if you can't see in front of the vessel that you're trying to drive, that's really dangerous. Um, You need to essentially be able to see far enough in front of you that if you see an object that's in your way, you have enough time to stop yourself before you run into it. So if you can't see that far ahead, then you need to stop moving forward. And unfortunately, that's what he was trying to do. He just wasn't able to complete that task before hitting the bridge. Another factor to this accident is that they had allowed a faster towboat to pass them about 30 minutes before they hit the bridge. When the pilot saw the bridge on the radar, he couldn't read the radar, but he still saw that there was something there. He thought that that object on the radar was the other boat that had passed them, not the bridge itself. So he tried and he just failed miserably. Then at 2.45 a.m., the towboat hits the bridge. So the bridge had a span that could be converted into a swing bridge to allow for the passage of boat traffic on the on the bayou. But at this time, there was no conversion that was made of the bridge. So when the boat hit the bridge, it knocked this span about a meter out of alignment and put a severe kink in the track of the bridge. So this bridge is a rail bridge. It has a piece of rail that goes across the bridge and then it can it can swing on on one of the columns to allow boats to go by but then obviously the the rail isn't isn't in service when the when the bridge is kind of parallel to the to the bayou for the boats to go by for those of you listening thinking i signed up for train tangents why are you talking about boats this is why the bridge is a rail bridge yes and then bad things happen that involve a train a few minutes later Eight minutes after the bridge is hit, so at 2.53 a.m. in the morning, the Sunset Limited, which is an Amtrak train traveling from L.A. to Miami, reaches the bridge. So a little bit about this train, because obviously we were curious. Traveling by train from L.A. to Miami takes around 102 hours and 14 minutes. But the fastest Amtrak train can make the trip in only 93 hours and 40 minutes. So they're able to cut a little over eight hours off the trip, which is quite considerable. It's a long distance. America's a big country. The Sunset Limited, which was the name of this train that goes from L.A. to Miami, um, and this is from Amtrak's website, is an Amtrak passenger train that for most of its history has run between New Orleans and L.A. over the nation's second transcontinental route. However, up until Hurricane Katrina in 2005, it ran between Orlando and L.A., and from 1993 to 96, it continued on to Miami, on what is called the Silver Meteors Route. It's the oldest continuously operating named train in the United States, which is pretty cool, and it was introduced in 1894 by the Southern Pacific Railroad and acquired by Amtrak upon its formation in 1971. And as far as I know, this train route is still in operation today. Perhaps not exactly from Miami to LA. They may have shortened it, but there's definitely a transcontinental route that goes down through the southern parts of the states, which is really, really cool. So this train route has been in operation for 128 years, which is a long time. Pretty cool. The train was powered by three locomotives or engine cars and had eight passenger cars and was carrying 220 passengers and crew. The train was traveling at 113 kilometers per hour because the conductor had no idea there was an issue with the bridge. 
The three locomotives hit the displaced span first, and that part of the bridge collapsed into the water below. The lead locomotive, which had only been in service with Amtrak for 20 days, so brand new, embedded itself into the canal bank on the other side of the river, so considerable distance away from where this issue was, into about 14 meters of mud. The three locomotives, baggage car, sleeping car, and two of the six passenger cars fell into the river. The passenger cars were double-decker cars, so there were quite a few people that were on this train. The force of the lead train here hitting the bridge and derailing, and not that all derailments are the same, but oftentimes when a train derails, or at least the ones that I've seen, it's gone off to the side of the tracks. Yeah, and, and usually that happens on a on a radius curve and something you know, doesn't really work out on the radius curve. So there's a few cars that, you know, kind of get off to, you know, one side, the inside of the of the curve. But this one, like Nicole said, the train's traveling really fast. I mean, it, it's it's the same as just launching your car off a, you know, off an interstate highway off a bridge. So there's considerable momentum that this train has with all the cars that it's carrying and the speed that it's going. So it goes a considerable distance. Yeah, on top of that, like we mentioned, it's the middle of the night. It's super foggy. The And we're going to get into this a little bit more later, but the there was no indication to anyone on the train that the bridge rails were out of alignment. So they didn't slow down. There's no braking. They just went full send off this bridge. The fuel tanks on the locomotives, which each held tens of thousands of liters of diesel fuel, ruptured with the collision and leaked into the river and caught on fire. The conductor and assistant conductor were in the second last car at the time of the accident and stated that there was no warning, no horn blast, no brakes, no communication from the crew, no light signals, nothing led them to believe that their train would go full send across a river and impact the bank. There was nothing. Yeah, I think that's a pretty big shortcoming of the bridge design in this case is that I think that there were sensors that could detect if the rails were not in alignment, but the bridge wasn't moved so far out of alignment that it that it set off the sensors. So I don't think that the sensors were sensitive enough, um, which would have been a huge help if you've, you know, if you've ridden trains of any kind there are train signals at all major intersections and at various points throughout the track that tell the the train conductor if it's safe to continue forward and so had the rail operators or even the the rail bridge sensors had picked up on this on this misalignment it would have told the conductor to stop and they wouldn't have passed forward and and derailed this train also just going back to the towboat so as we've talked about, it's the middle of the night, so it's dark, it's foggy. There's no lights here. You're in the middle of the bayou. There's no street lights. When the towboat ran into the bridge, he didn't even really know what he hit, which just going back to him thinking it was the other boat that had passed him 30 minutes earlier. Well, I follow that's what he thinks he saw on the radar. It still doesn't explain why he ran into it because he at least thought it was something. So whether it was a bridge or another boat, he still drove into it. So when he ran into the bridge, he just felt a bump, but he wasn't really sure what he hit. He didn't realize that he hit a bridge. And then all of a sudden he saw flames five to 10 minutes later, but he had no idea what was going on. He did not realize it was a train. 
He did not realize there was a derailment. You know, he's flying blind, just like everybody else. Eventually, he did figure out what was going on, and he ended up saving 17 people after the crash, which I think was great of him to do. I mean, he caused the crash, so that would have been better to not have caused the crash. But the fact that he realized what was going on and had the wherewithal to save people was at least a better outcome than what could have been. Yeah, and, and probably at the time, like he didn't make the connection be, between him bumping into something and this train that's that's derailed, falling off the bridge, and you know saving people. Because what happened was when he, so he didn't, so he couldn't read the radar, and they didn't have charts, so they didn't realize that they were even on the wrong river. Even if they had seen the bridge, they wouldn't have known what bridge it was because the bridge wouldn't have shown up on the river that they thought they were on because they were on a different part of the river. Yeah, and, and this is also back in 1993. So GPS has really just come onto the market. Um, and it's largely, um, I believe, still kind of locked to military applications. So it didn't have the accuracy that we currently have for GPS. So it would have been, I think, all right for navigation for at least knowing that they were on the wrong wrong river or the wrong branch. So I do think the GPS stuff would have helped. And like Nicole said, with them not having any charts and also not navigating correctly in the fog, they're not where they think they are. So even though he's stopped after he's hit something, he doesn't realize exactly what he's hit. I, we've mentioned he thinks he hits another boat. But if he's not where he thinks he is, he's not going to make a connection that he's actually hit this train bridge. Because I, I feel there'd be a lot more urgency um, if he knew he had hit the train bridge or, you know, he would have tried to do something to make somebody, you know, the, the rail company aware or, you know, gone up on track or made a phone call. In addition to this being pre-GPS, this is also pre-cell phone. I mean, people had car phones or really big cell phones. I think sometimes they used to carry them in suitcases. This part's honestly a little bit before my time. I remember my grandma had a car phone that had a cord on it, and I thought that was really cool. But I don't know a ton about cell phones around the 93 era. Uh, but I definitely know that it's highly unlikely anyone was carrying a cell phone. And if they did have a cell phone, it's making phone calls only. It's not a – you can't text with this phone. You can't open – a map application and see the blue dot of where you are. There's, they're very, they're, the communication options are pretty limited at this time. Back then, um, there were a lot more radio networks and radio communication. So, so I feel that if they had have known where they were, they probably could have made radio contact with somebody that, that would be able to phone the train company or raise the train company. Either way, that didn't happen due to a number of factors. And even after hitting the bridge and kind of displacing the bridge, the continuously welded rails, they didn't break, which means that the track circuit controlling the approach signals remained intact. The signal before the bridge displayed green to the train operating crew, which meant all clear. It's good to go. It's good to proceed. Had it displayed red, I mean stop or amber for caution, the train crew would have had enough time to stop the train or at least reduce its speed. The signal operator for the bridge was in Jacksonville, Florida, but again, they had no idea that there was an issue with the track because the contact signal for the for the bridge and for the rails, it didn't break. So from the train crew perspective and the signal operator perspective, everything looks peachy. Like they they don't know that something has hit the bridge. Yeah, and we'll get to the outcomes or the um the re the list of recommendations shortly, but the train crew were found to be not at fault. There was 
honestly nothing they could have done to prevent this based on the lack of information that they had. Also, even if the towboat pilot had known where he was, there was a very, very short window between him hitting the bridge and the train coming through on the bridge. Not too short of a window that this couldn't have been prevented, but we're talking five, 10 minutes after he hits the bridge, the train comes through. So it's a very, very tight window of him to for him to figure out where he is, find a way to warn someone, get to that person, and then have them change the signal. And I find it hard to fully trust that had he realized where he was and acted right away, that this could have been fully prevented. I just, I don't know that it would have moved that fast in an emergency. In emergencies, people typically panic. And I say that from experience. I'm not super great in emergencies either. I'm working on it, but I'm not great. Yeah, the the window, like Nicole mentioned, kind of that five to 10 minute window, that's a really tight window for kind of a problem diagnosis, getting a hold of somebody, explaining the problem, diagnosing the problem, them understanding the severity of it, especially if everything that they have on their end says, you know, they have green lights for stuff, you know, there's no broken connection there. So I think, yeah, I, I agree with Nicole, even with enough, even if he had been able to get in touch with Amtrak or the operator, or, you know, somebody that could do something about it. I don't know if it would substantially change the outcome. It's not like as soon as he called, you know, five seconds later, something would, would happen. He'd, he'd still probably have to find a number. And then if you're waiting on hold for things, it, it it probably would have had the same outcome, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's it's not like he bumped the bridge so hard that the entire bridge swung open. He bumped it, I think it was only about a meter I mean, it wasn't enough for the signal to to change for the bridge to even recognize that it was the the rails were not in alignment. So it probably would have taken him five minutes just to get up onto the bridge to even see if he had messed up the track enough that there'd be an issue. So, yeah, I just don't think there was enough time, honestly, not to be a negative Nancy. I just don't. It just seems like a very, very tight window. Yeah, kind of a a calamity of events that just happen to coincide in, in an unfortunate way. Yeah. On top of that, what I what I honestly think is the most unfortunate part of this, aside from the preventable accident itself, is that the train was actually 30 minutes behind schedule. They had to stop in New Orleans to repair some air conditioning and some toilets. And had the train been on schedule, it would have crossed this bridge before the towboat ran into it. And this entire thing would have been avoided. That's Aside from the accident itself, to me, that's the second most tragic part of this is that a few little things that were completely unrelated and just normal things that happen when you're traveling, I mean, by train or any other method, pushed the schedule back far enough that it caught the derailment right after he hit the bridge. And I just think that's a really, really unfortunate coincidence. As a result of this derailment, there were 47 deaths mostly from drowning as well as from fire and smoke inhalation. There were 103 injuries in total. So as we mentioned before, there's about 220 people on board. Um, So we're looking at 20-ish percent of people perished in this accident, which is not great. I mean, of course, one out of any number is horrible, and especially when it's preventable, but 20% is a lot. And, And I would also like to mention here We've said it a number of times. This was in the middle of the night. This is an overnight route. 
people were likely sleeping when this happened. So now you've got people that are sleeping. They don't notice any changes in the train. The train's not slowing down, not breaking. And then all of a sudden it runs into the embankment of a river and the car starts filling with water and you're going from completely dead asleep to absolutely wide awake and trying to figure out what's going on, how to get out, where the emergency exit is. And there's just so much, I can only imagine it was complete chaos. It's also still dark. I do not envy any of the people that experienced this crash. It's horrible. This accident is also noted as the deadliest train accident in Amtrak's history and the worst rail disaster in the U.S. after the 1958 Newark Bay rail accident, which killed 48 people. So, I mean, just barely the second worst disaster. Bridge, like we mentioned, did as well suffer some damage. So for the purpose of explaining this, we'll, we'll break the bridge down into three sections. So the first section we're going to talk about is the truss section, which is the first part of the bridge that the train crosses over. And this section sustains extensive damage. The next part that the train goes over or would have gone over is the girder section. And this is pretty destroyed. And this is the part of the bridge that could be swung out. So it's the it's the middle piece of the bridge. It would rotate to allow boats to go by. And then the third section is destroyed during the derailment, mostly because the train drove right into it. The nose of the south pier had some concrete chipping from where the barge hit it. Some portions of the bridge were found 15 meters north of their original location. So these have shifted substantially from where they were supposed to be. The cost associated with the barge running into the bridge and the train subsequently leaving the bridge were not insignificant. So in 2022 dollars for the cost to repair the bridge and rebuild track and reroute the train. So in rail equipment, $31 million. The track and bridge cost $3.9 million. Rerouting of the trains, $3.3 million. Marine equipment, kind of a cheap one, only $2,400. Pollution cleanup from when the diesel spilled into the river, 228000 for a grand total of $38.6 million in 2022 dollars. So this was a fairly expensive disaster on top of 47 people perishing. And I want to add that $2022 number is about double uh, the 1993 cost. So yay inflation. Also, these numbers don't cover any of the payouts that would have been given or the lawsuits that would have been given to the victims and the family members of the victims from this derailment and this horrible accident. This, yeah, this is basically the cost to remediate the rail and the bridge back to a, a usable condition. So we've touched on a few of these, but there's definitely a number of lessons learned from the accident investigation that was done. And we're going to go through them. We've kind of talked about some of them. They're all pretty straightforward, but uh, I do think it's important to recap. So there was a lack of a national risk assessment program to determine bridge vulnerability to marine vessel collisions. And this prevented the railroad industry from taking action to increase protection. And this is not the first time we've seen a marine vessel run into a bridge. This isn't even the first time we've talked about it on the show. The Sunshine Skyway also had another vessel run into a bridge and took out a huge section of the, the highway, which was also horrible. But as we've seen as well, there's a number of bridges in, I'm going to call it the United States specifically, but I'm sure there are plenty of other countries that are having this issue. 
where their infrastructure is just not necessarily maintained or looked after to the level that it needs to be to last uh, as long as it should. And we're seeing bridges collapse all over the world, um, which is really unfortunate. And and it's not always, there's a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's maintenance, sometimes it's a design defect, sometimes it's renovation work to the bridge that wasn't fully coordinated or thought out and maybe some of the work's going on is too heavy or maybe it exposed some metal that got corroded that wasn't supposed to. Um, We've also seen a number of bridges collapse lately due to flooding. There's been some really bad floods in the northwestern United States, but also throughout uh, Western Asia as well. So that's really, really tragic um, to see these bridges collapse. And I just think we need to pay a little bit more attention to our infrastructure, especially the infrastructure that we use every day. Some of the bridges that we've talked about on this podcast have, they see thousands and thousands of people cross them every single day. They're obviously critical parts of the infrastructure of that area. And I think they just need a little bit more attention to make sure that the people traveling across it are safe. Rant over on that one. Moving along, as I mentioned before, the train crew's qualifications and the condition of the track, signals, or train equipment, aside from the fact that the signals didn't recognize that the rails were no longer in alignment, the train crew's qualifications did not contribute to the accident. So they were not found to be at fault at all, which is not really surprising. They had no idea this was coming. All signals said green for go. As we've also talked about, the towboat pilot didn't know how to read radar properly And had he done that, he wouldn't have made a wrong turn and he would have avoided this bridge entirely. His company should have made sure that he was adequately trained to do so. And the Coast Guard also didn't, at least at this time, require that he be trained in radar navigation, which is unfortunate. I think a bit of an oversight there. The pilot also used poor judgment by continuing to navigate when he couldn't find a spot to stop. By continuing to approach the unidentified object on the radar, which again, he thought was a boat, but was actually a bridge. Either way, he continued to approach it. Even if he thought it was a boat, he should have stopped. And again, this could have been avoided. And he also had crew on board that he could have asked for help, but he was on deck and they were off for the night. They were sleeping in their bunks and he didn't want to bother them. And so he didn't get the help that he should have gotten. And again, prevented this from happening. So post-accident, the boat crew was tested for drugs and alcohol, but this occurred approximately 10 hours after the accident and they weren't conclusive either way. This is not to say that they were under the influence of drugs or alcohol, but the delay in testing is a procedural issue that should be corrected. In fact, the regulations for post-accident testing at the time did not specify a time limit to conduct that testing. Yeah, it's like someone getting in an accident, you suspect they've been drinking, and you you test their blood alcohol level two days later. Like, it's not going to tell you if they were drunk or under the influence at the time of the accident. You have to test right away. I mean, people metabolize alcohol and and other drugs at different rates depending on the person. And so it's really important to do that testing as close to the accident as you can to get the most accurate results. But again, we don't know either way. So on Amtrak, passengers can purchase tickets on the train and board and leave it really at their leisure. So Amtrak was unaware of exactly how many passengers there were on the train at the time of this incident. The list that they did have, it took until the next day to get to the emergency responders, which is a huge disadvantage to the rescue. The responders aren't aware of how many people they need to be looking for, whether they have everyone accounted for, whether there's other people that they should be looking for. So that makes it really, really tricky. Like 
I totally appreciate Amtrak's policy of, you know, hop on, hop, hop off train stuff. It's great for, you know, at your leisure travel if you want to stay an extra time and catch the next train. But in this situation, it makes it really, really difficult to figure out how many people you needed to rescue. I think on top of that, because they still, I well, I haven't ridden Amtrak for a while, but I believe Via Rail has a similar policy. I still think you can kind of hop on and hop off at your leisure to an extent, but at least now when they check your tickets, they're scanning them. And so at least they have an electronic record of the number of people on board. And maybe they don't know, they don't know who you are, what your name is, but they'll know, okay, I have so many adult tickets that I've scanned and so many child tickets that I've scanned. Although I guess they don't necessarily scan who gets off, but they would, they scan every so many major stops. And so the next time they scan, let's say they have 10 less tickets. Well, they know they've lost 10 passengers or whatever. So I think just the electronic ticketing has helped course correct that a little bit because I believe their policy is still pretty similar. Remember, Nicole, this, this also happened in 1993. I believe I had just gotten internet that was at 14.4 kbps, which is incredibly slow. Yeah, this is also pre 9-11 and pre a bunch of other disasters of various kinds. And so I think our awareness, not that this was a terrorist event at all, but I think we're just unaware a little bit at this time, maybe a little naive to all of the different things that can go sideways and how to be better prepared for them. I think we've come a long way in that, which is really unfortunate because of all the tragic things we've had to go through to get here. But I do think we're a little bit better prepared for disasters, natural or man-made. And lastly, despite the remoteness of the accident site, weather conditions and limited modes of transportation to get to the accident site, which were pretty much boat only, the emergency response was found to be well-coordinated and effective. Which is really impressive, considering how remote this was. Um, and and the fact that it's foggy and in the middle of the night. I think that was really, really good. That's one thing they had working on their side. And I mean, after all of the things that have gone wrong, it's nice to have at least one thing on your side. Again, this was entirely preventable, but it could have been a lot worse had they not been able to rescue people as fast as they were able to. So, you know, again, preventable, shouldn't have happened. Tragic that anyone perished in this event. But of course, the more people you can rescue in these types of things, the better, obviously. So there you have it. The Big Bayou Cannot Rail Accident. A barge hit a bridge and knocked the rails off track, causing a train to derail in the middle of the night. Better bridge risk assessment programs, a qualified towboat pilot, or even better rail sensor equipment could have prevented this derailment. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right on our Patreon page. And check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode where we're going to talk about the PIP breast implant recalls. This is going to be our first medical-related engineering failure. I've wanted to do one of those since the very beginning of the show. There's a lot more regulations that go into into medical devices that do make it a lot more difficult for failures to get all the way through to to the general public, which of course is is really unfortunate that this one did, but I think it's going to be a really interesting episode and we are very excited for it. So more on that next time. 
Bye, everyone. Talk soon.